Broadcasting live from the Great Northern Hotel in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington, I'm Matt. I'm Caroline, and this is an episode-by-episode breakdown and discussion of all three seasons of Twin Peaks. We've recently been receiving reports of a quote-unquote giant wandering the halls of the Great Northern, and even entering guest rooms unannounced. If you have any information regarding this, please contact the front desk immediately. If not, stay tuned for our show. Today, we'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 1, May the Giant Be With You. I wasn't expecting your bit. It threw me off. Yeah, sorry. I wanted to, I wanted to keep it a surprise. I thought I'm doing something a little different for that one. You know, this is a new season, a new us, and uh, I want to come back like real professionals. Yeah, so no more, no more joking around in these intros. We're, uh, we're making it eerie and thematic now. Speaking of eerie and thematic, season two, episode one. May the giant be with you. We're finally there. I will preface this by saying... What a delight this episode was. I had so much fun with it, and I, I'm, actually, I'm so, so, so excited to get into this because this may be my favorite episode that I've rewatched. And I think I say that for basically half of these, but I'm picking a new one now, guys. It's this, this one, one. No, this one was really, really solid. Uh, it was written by Mark Frost, directed by David Lynch, and the story uh, was a collaboration by the two of them, according to the credits. So this is one of the... Uh, the pure episodes, I guess you could say. Uh, you could. We uh, the credits fade onto the exterior of the Great Northern Hotel, and then into the interior of Cooper's room, and we are picking up immediately after the end of season one, right where it left off. Cooper is bleeding out on the floor as a, a strange old hotel worker arrives with room service, a glass of warm milk, and he does his best, but but yeah, despite Cooper. Uh, pleading with him to call the doctor. He instead hangs up the phone, which still has Andy uh, shouting over the line, and doesn't doesn't seem to quite understand uh, Cooper's predicament. So he, he leaves him after assuring them he's heard of him and flashing him a, a thumbs up. He's a nice guy. I mean, like... Yeah, yeah, definitely just... God, that scene was excruciating. It was excruciating the first time. It was excruciating the second time. It was excruciating this time when I watched it. It's just... Uh, that old man. <laughs> Can you get get a doctor? Get help? Do something? But I can't like actually be annoyed with him because he's just. No, he's a he's a con- he's a consummate hotel employee because he uh, he actually has Coop sign the check for the room service, gratuity included. Like he's really nice outside of. I'm sure if you were any other guest of the hotel, that would have been a great experience. There was just some sort of extenuating circumstances there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But as soon as he disappears, a giant, or as he'll come to be known, the giant, or later on, just question marks, <laughs> appears from thin air and tells Cooper that he will uh, impart on him three things. The first of which, that there is a man in a smiling bag. The second, that the owls are not what they seem. And finally, that without chemicals, he points. He takes Cooper's ring and says he'll return it to them to him later when the things he said are proven true. And I love this because he, he looks directly at the camera when he says this. I guess the, the, the ring, the camera's supposed to be positioned from where the ring is, so he's looking down at the ring. But yeah. he, says it, he says it directly at the camera, and it's just a, a cool little small detail because of uh, the angles and the size of uh, the actors. The, it's a very off-putting scene. He, he adds that, quote, we want to help, although when Cooper asks to clarify who we is, 
he only goes on to say that there's a clue in Leo's house and a little last message that Leo locked inside a hungry horse uh, and then disappears. Yeah, there's also that really great line where Cooper says to the giant, he says, where do you come from? And then the giant says, um, the question is, where have you gone? And I really loved that. Like, oh man, especially, I don't want to like get too far ahead of ourselves here, but like, especially with the return, that line just really stuck out to me. Yeah, I'm going to say we will have later on a spoilers section that we'll do and we'll, uh, We'll timestamp it so we can tell you when to skip ahead. But I, I would actually like to talk a little bit about some of the later stuff in season two and season three in this one. Cause, yeah. Uh, oh, this this episode was really great because well, I don't want to say that uh, Lynch and Frost were seeding the stuff that happened in three this far back because obviously it's the reverse. They just took the stuff that was in this and turned yeah. it into three. But but they did it really well. Yeah, a lot of it gave me chills of just like oh sh- like oh shit. And this is the this is the first scene. Yeah, sets you right in there, right, right from the get-go. Yeah. We cut to One-Eyed Jacks, where Ben uh, is trying to get intimate with Audrey, and Jerry <laughs> is being a dick to Blackie. For, I have n- no reason that I can tell. I'm not really sure what happened. No, but I, I actually really like this scene, because for once, Jerry actually seems like a creepy nut job instead of just sort of Ben's fun-loving... Yeah. He's, like, legitimately slimy and cold and, like, oh, he could, like, snap and stab someone. Yeah, there's an an interesting, like, kind of, not role reversal necessarily, but just, um, I guess, there's a bit of a, of a switch here in how Jerry is the one who's cold and calculating and whatever, and then also later in the scene, but, um, like, that Jerry goes and is, like, gets Ben and is, like, we have a problem, we need to... Yeah, Audrey is using a mask to hide her face as she tries to rebuff Ben's advances, but unfortunately he reads that as sort of like for a like virginal coy banter, but Jerry calls him away on, as you said, a business, an S-N-A-G, a snag, he says, so Audrey is safe for now. This is like such a gross scene, and it's difficult because it's it is over the top. But this feels a lot like the stuff in Blue Velvet with like Frank Booth and stuff. And oh yeah, it's that's so, true. I mean, it really is super slimy. Not a new sentiment, but like, ugh. You know, even though he it, he doesn't know that it's Audrey, like he knows it's a girl Audrey's age, like approximately. You know, like it's it just it, yeah it drives home the the creepiness of the way that he always is in a yeah. in a different way here, I think. And I, I suspect that the actor is probably a nice dude. And so a lot of the time I get the, f- the feeling, and probably because he's supposed to be somewhat of a mustache-twirling villain, that he is he is acting slimy. And in this scene it was like, oh, he's being slimy. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. I see what you mean. The next morning, a few hours later, Coop records a message for Diane, hoping that he had triggered the, the voice activation recording. He says that being shot altogether isn't too bad, realizes that the ring is actually gone uh, in real life, not simply a vision. And he lists his regrets, which are many, namely uh, never visiting Tibet. But the police arrive just in time. I'm surprised he's good. I'm surprised like, that he survived this long. I did, you know, it makes sense. It's the next morning, but he did get back at something like 4 or 5 a.m. the previous episode, so it has only been a couple hours and has it even been that long? Because it, when he wakes up... Hayward says it's like 7.45. 7.45, yeah. yeah. And if he got back at like 4 and was under for like an hour... That's true, that's true. Cooper wakes up on an operating table soon after. There's a, a 
really kind of wacky stretch transition. That was so weird. But I love it. He, you know, David Lynch does a lot in his movies and stuff, but just where he has sort of strange practical effects, or not practical effects, but just like very basic editing techniques that he takes to an extreme that would look so goofy other places, but they uh, they do it for me. But we so. we put up with it because it's David Lynch. No, I I like him. I think it's I think when you can revamp basic shots and stuff like that into something that still makes you go like what the hell instead of like woof well anyway I, the reason that cooper was bleeding was because that although he wore his bulletproof vest he had rolled it up to get at a wood tick and so one of the one or two of the bullets i guess one managed to penetrate through the vest and hayward upon his coming to shows him that in fact the bullet <laughs> killed the wood tick on its way in. Uh, yeah, and he says, like, hell of a way to kill a tick. So just in case the opening, uh, opening couple scenes were a little intense or a little weird for people getting back into the show after whatever was off the air a year, eight months, uh, brings it back here. This is vintage, uh, vintage Hayward, so hashtag HaywardCast. Yeah, yeah, still absolutely adore Doc Hayward. He is still the, the best. Lucy lists out everything that has happened in the night to get Cooper and the audience up to date. It's a good way to fill people in after a season break, but the listing is is hilarious. It doesn't feel expositional at all. It just feels like such a rigmarole of like, oh my god, like what a nightmare for the police. And in fact, when you as the episode progresses, you realize that there's stuff she didn't list that also happened that they just don't know about yet. Yeah, which is also pretty cool. I like that Cooper asks, how long have I been out? And it's, you know, a couple hours. Yeah, well, I mean, Cooper's, Cooper's straight to business once uh, once he finds out what's going on. Just gets right up out of that hospital bed. For those of you who also took a break along with us, I guess not by choice, but by force, Lucy tells us that Leo's been shot, Jacques Renault has been strangled, the mill was burned, Shelly and Pete got smoke inhalation from said mill, Catherine and Josie are missing, and Nadine is in a coma after taking pills to commit suicide. And Cooper tries to get back up, despite Doc Hayward's protests, uh, sets off to get back to it. Uh, a TV show shows what is left of the mill. I love this shot. It's it's slightly grainy because it's sort of shot from the TV screen, but it's disorienting because you're not sure. The color scheme and shot composition is not like any kind of thing you've seen in Twin Peaks before, so I assume it was uh, stock footage they used. Yeah, I was going to say it looked like it looked like stock footage. But yeah, an anchor is basically talking about the mill burned down, and Shelly is sort of sobbing in the room watching the TV, recovering from said smoke inhalation. Cooper spots Jacques' body bag, or Jacques in the body bag, really, and wonders aloud if the bag is smiling. And then there's a really, really good slow shot panning from Ronette's patient records file over to her on her bed. It gets a little ridiculous because they overlay her walking from the train tracks from the first episode, and you see her stir a little bit. But the lighting in the initial slow camera pan over, super, super cool. A lot happened. This is an hour and a half long debut uh, season. Oh, what's the word for this first episode of a season? Premiere. Premiere, thank you. I was like, debut? No, that's not right. So it's another hour and a half season premiere, which is nice. Gets gets you to, uh, gets a lot filled in here. It did. My one complaint is I do think it was, it was a little slow. Yeah, and especially at the beginning, I thought like I haven't really had much to say about anything that we've gone over so far, just because there was a lot of setup in mm-hmm. the first part of it. A lot of it's just making, making sure you're aware of everyone's placement is after sort of 
things were shaken up before. Yeah. So, which is fine. It's necessary, but I think, it, yeah, it just, it felt like a little, it did feel a little slow. And maybe I wouldn't have thought that if I had not seen this show so many times. Like, I kind of knew where everyone was and what was going on. No, I think the other thing they do is they sort of, uh, they're starting to set the smaller characters onto their secondary plots after a lot of stuff kind of tied up in season one. I mean, not entirely secondary, but you know what I mean, in all of the second phase of what right. their character's going to do here. Whereas other things like the investigation, I feel like there's a lot here in terms of the actual criminal sort of discovery that Coop and, and Albert are doing. They're trying to get you situated and also launch launch new things. So I'm sorry, I've just been rambling and summarizing all the plot. But So we go to the, the Palmer house, mm-hmm. which is... Possibly a different exterior shot. I feel like it's a different exterior shot every time. I rewatched it a couple times. I think maybe it was a side shot down the sidewalk. I thought it was at first a, like a walkway up to the house that I'd never seen, but it may have just been a side shot of the same exterior. I don't know. It was strange. It might have been like, it looked like it was kind of up a driveway. So. Yeah. But Maddie and Sarah are talking and Maddie starts to share a dream that she had about the carpet. And she seems startled by it and sort of distressed, but she's interrupted by Leland who walks in singing as per usual or i guess plus he's more dancing man this is this is where the singing comes in huh yeah now he starts singing and i swear to god the first time i watched this i thought i was having a stroke because i could not for the life of me make what he was saying into words <laughs> well he, it looks like he also is kind of having a stroke his hair has turned a pure like pitch white over the night and everyone yeah. is shocked but sort of amused it looks like Sarah and Leland beg off for a second and when Maddie looks back down at the carpet she sees an apparition move across it and and it scares her yeah it looks kind of like a a stain spreading or like something moving underneath it it's it's not entirely clear um it's a little bit discolored and darker um but also moving so or or spreading and then it disappears yeah I like I like the way that it that this scene sets up, though, too, when she's talking about how she had a dream about the carpet, like a specific spot on the carpet. Mm. That's just such a nice, like, weird detail where it does eventually turn into something more ominous, but I, I at first it's just, like, very odd mm. um, without necessarily being frightening that she just had a dream about this very specific spot in the carpet. And this is the episode where a lot of the, the dream logic that the show has been presenting us so far seems to make a definitive crossing into reality. I think that's part of it. Yeah. Ben and Jerry, I don't know, they're being evil and conspiring when Leland shows up still singing. They join in, but I think are arrested by the sight of his hair. But he says he is back and ready. Ben's briefly tap dancing on his desk. It's glorious and I think comes back later on when he starts to go crazy. Cooper and Truman are investigating Leo's place and cooper pieces together the sequence of events pretty pretty quickly i it's a good bit of just detective work that i think the show it moves in and out of actually being a detective series and having any kind of actual deduction going on so nice to see him piecing stuff together but albert arrives which causes andy to run in that scene where they get out of the car i'm sorry it's just they like all get out at once and they're all cliche like fbi and the sunglasses and the trench coats and it just it just looked hilarious to me no i love i love albert in full-on badass mode (sighs) he's such a dick i hate him so much well oh man 
I think this may be my favorite episode of Al Ridicishness because it feels supernatural. And the fact that he, he just like smirks the entire time through, like he's, he's so done with it by this point that he's not as vitriolic. He's just like, doesn't even give a fuck. <laughs> uh, let's see. Andy like steps on a, a loose board and it flies up and hits him in the face. He staggers back and Albert is bemused and shouts out something about, oh, another fine moment in, in law enforcement history. But as it turns out, the joke's on him because it uncovered a new pair of boots and a lot of cocaine uh, stashed under the board. They've got a lead. Maddie and Donna meet up at the double R to exchange a pair of sunglasses, I guess. Yeah. And they resolve to keep quiet about what happened at Jacoby's because they suspect that James will do the same. Donna takes a drag of a cigarette and looks killer. Norma comes by and drops a note that tells him to look into meals on wheels. Yeah, she said it it came, it was like addressed to Donna, but came to the double R. Yeah. And the log lady spits gum at the wall and misses and then has to put it back on. But I guess they just kept that taken. Albert is investigating Cooper on a mandate, he says, from Gordon Cole. He doesn't want to be there, but because of the proximity and familiarity with the case, that's how it's going to go. So Yeah, so he's investigating the fact that Cooper got shot. Andy supplies Cooper with an answer to the giant's riddle about Leo, saying that after calling down, he discovered that Leo was locked in the Hungry Horse Jail in 1988, the night that Teresa Banks was killed, which clears him from being the serial murderer involved in that case. Yeah, which I didn't even, like, think about as something that they would be... Like, it didn't even occur to me that that's what they would be investigating. Although, obviously, of course, it makes sense that if they suspect that Leo killed Laura, that they would then be looking into him as the same person who murdered Teresa Banks. I thought this was a really great detail on their part. The show feels like it forgets a couple of the times that this is the second killing in a serial case. And so the fact that it brings this back and that that the giant seems to be aware of this and that this is... uh, I think this episode does a very good job of... This brings the mystery back into the... "Mm, Nope, we we have no clue what's going on here. And there is something larger at play in fact yeah it, it moves it back into kind of the wider wider world and like you said reminds us that there is that this is a serial killer that they're investigating yeah i like that as well mike arrives to sell truman shoes at the police station ominously that's it mike not not snake mike james hurley plays the tape for truman of uh, of laura and confesses to breaking into jacoby but leaves donna and maddie out of it and he also recounts a strange intonation that laura had said to him that it mentions Bob and playing with fire. Yeah, he says this was when they first started seeing each other when she was still doing drugs um, and that she was talking about somebody named Bob. And so he thinks that the... He tells Truman that he doesn't think the mystery man that she talks about is is Leo I, based I on think this. That when he says, like, this is back when she was still doing drugs, I was like, I'm pretty sure she was doing drugs the entire time. And it reminded me of that, oh, who is it? Mitch something or the comedian that was like, I used to do drugs. I still do, but I used to, too. <laughs> <laughs> So credit to whoever that comedian is. He's very famous. So I'm just, I know I'm stealing his joke. I'm, I'm admitting it. Cooper arrives and demands the half of the heart necklace from James. James coughs it up, but says that he found it in Jacoby's office. And in a coconut. In a coconut. And Coop says he had no idea Jacoby was actually involved in this, but adds that sometimes you just get lucky. Donna, this next scene is hard to, hard to talk about. You'll see what I have in my notes, but... Basically, Donna, she just burns down the whole police department with a cigarette, a pair of sunglasses, and a a slow guitar backing track. (laughs) 
yeah, Donna has all of a sudden become very cool and enigmatic and badass, and so she just has big sunglasses, and yeah, she's smoking, and there's twangy, sensual music behind her as she walks yeah. in to see James, and oof. <laughs> it's undercut a little bit by the fact that, like, like, we know that she got these sunglasses from Maddie that were Laura's specifically for this purpose it seems like this is this is some some premeditated being enigmatic in the police station but it still works well i think in the in the previous scene though when she tries them on at the diner she like puts them on and then like looks off to the side like very calm and cool and collected and then you see her like take them off almost begrudgingly and it's like is she being like corrupted by the power of cool like, are they, is she like going to, is she going to the dark side of the sunglasses pulling her over like <laughs> despite this though James seems nonplussed when when she arrives at his cell to kind of fill him in and then try to mack on him he's uh yeah kind of pulls away and uh, this is what I said sort of them setting up their uh their secondary plot arcs Don is moving into doing the meals on wheels stuff James is gonna he's gonna go off and be a loner soon enough so yeah. The whole, the entirety of Twin Peaks is just a really good show in which James Hurley does not matter or need to be there really after the first four episodes. And so for the rest of the show, they're just trying to like get him to matter at all. I was going to say, you don't even have to add the first four episodes qualifier on there. No, I'm sorry. I love you, James. I wish you were written better. He's really good up until it gets bad, but that's that's a lot of it. I think this episode's really fun. I love that they're in the diner, like, James isn't going to say anything, and then later on it cuts to James saying everything, except selling them out. Like, Yeah, he doesn't. I don't know. It's cool seeing them act like kind of scared kids suddenly now that this is all falling apart and they kind of got caught. Yeah, he's fine in these episodes. I just, from about here on out, the rest of the show is just me wondering if he really needs to be there and concluding that he doesn't well right like someone else should have gotten murdered you know i'm not saying it had to be him but oh i guess someone oh never mind Mm, Uh, spoilers i don't don't remember well enough it's not spoilers if i'm just making it up and it happens to be true sure anyway cooper sets lucy and andy to look through the flesh world magazines that these are the ones i assume he found at leo's place or is it just copies that he picked up for? It's back issues. Okay. Yeah, he got, like, a bunch of back issues. Because okay. he says something to Diane in his recorder about that. He said, like, the back issues arrived. My mistake. Well, Andy finds this extremely awkward when he leaves them to look through the Flesh World magazines for... But Lucy, which I... Literally when Andy was like, Lucy, this is so awkward. My, the response in my head was like, or professionals, relax. And that's exactly what she says. Yeah, but then she does gasp when she opens the first magazine she's a little bit shocked well that's because we don't we don't actually get to see what she saw which was a picture of andy right there with his his junk out (laughs) that was actually why he thought it was so awkward because he was like oh i know that issue that's the issue i submitted my name to (laughs) that's the most uncomfortable thought i could possibly have had in my head so thank you for that (laughs) (laughs) i would argue that season two andy naked with his junk out is somewhat better than season three andy naked with his junk out god damn it i knew you were gonna say that uh cooper in the meantime heads over to interrogate jacoby at the hospital he is out of intensive care i guess and basically admits that he he found the necklace because he followed leo in the red corvette which is true but after he lost him he then followed james and donna being pursued by the cops who lost them but he didn't and was able to follow them into the woods 
overheard them talking and saw them bury the necklace. That's how he knew about the necklace under the rock. And then he tells them, he just basically tells them about Aura's double life. Suggests that perhaps she did not commit suicide, but allowed herself to be killed. Yeah. Something, something, victim blaming, something, something. I don't know. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I know what he means. I know what he means, too. I, yeah. Because he said that the last time he, he saw her, she seemed more peaceful, and he thought that she had, had, had sort of reconciled herself and decided what she was going to do. Then he says that now he thinks that it's because she had decided to let herself be killed. So Yeah, yeah it's the kind of thing where I'm, I'm having watched season three and just sort of puzzled through the overall, I don't know, mystery of the show. I can't tell, I can't really tell if this is, if it doesn't land because it, to me, doesn't square with what's actually true. Like, I don't think that Laura did want to die, but then again, I, I don't know. It's hard to tell. But he says that he did not see the intruder who strangled Jacques Renault, but that there was a smell like scorched oil around the time of the fire alarm, which I think, and we'll talk about this in the spoilers, but I think is initially meant meant to make you think that it's someone who was involved in the mill burning but but we know who it was yes well i just meant like for the cops bobby goes to visit shelly in the hospital a lot of this episode takes place in the hospital because a lot of people were just got messed up last night (laughs) Uh, yeah half the town is in the hospital right now so pretty much poor doc hayward being the only physician in town he uh, Bobby visits Shelly, but plays dumb about Leo's shooting. They flirt up a little bit, and he Shelly drops the L word, which he uses back. And Cooper, Truman, and Albert spot him dressed as Judd Nelson, <laughs> walking out of her room. It's a good good look for Bobby. I support it. The flannel and the leather jacket. Yeah, they just leaned, leaned way into that. I guess someone's been watching too much Stranger Things season three. Anyone who has watched Stranger Things. Season three has watched too much because it was terrible. I was going to say that's on a my lot of levels. Con- that's my controversial review that I think you'll you are now joining in for for the first time ever. But yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm joining in on your non Twin Peaks television review. Uh, Stranger Things three was bad, guys. Bad, very bad, and also not uh not feminist. Not going to get into it here because that's not what this podcast is about. And also, I've pitched that idea elsewhere. But <laughs> I still remain unconvinced that the Duffer Brothers have ever spoken to a woman. <laughs> Yeah, I well, I was going to say, I tried to not make angry Twitter posts about it, but I guess I did. It but did. anyway, I'm getting, yeah, I'm getting my frustration out here, even though no one wants to hear it. I did not enjoy that. And if you liked it, you're wrong. I'm sure we just dropped basically all of our listeners with that, but... What listeners? <laughs> so, Cooper, Truman, and Albert run into Ed, who is waiting outside of Nadine's room when she's in the coma and recounts the story of how they ended up together in the you know it seems like a loveless marital situation and how how his relationship with norma featured into it albert says something at some point about ed ed says something about not believing in fate and you make your own way and then albert has some quip about farmer's almanac because he's a dick who likes to make fun of men whose wives are in comas. I'm sorry, he's such... I, I do like his character, like, at large, but in individual moments, he is so difficult for me to watch, because he's just such a dick for no reason. Well, like, if this was a modern-day show, like, instead of him saying it out loud, it would, like, cut to him texting those quips to Cooper. 
you know, like in real time. So this is an amazing scene, though. I thought I was I told you this when we were watching it, but I think the writing on Twin Peaks is always very engaging. It's very clever and super interesting. And it can be moving, but it's usually even at its best out there. And this is one of those scenes, I think, where he just talks about how he was in love with Norma. Norma ran off with Hank. It ended up not meaning anything, but he got so messed up. I, he ran off with, with Nadine. They got married. Turns out Hank and Norma weren't a thing. But then because Nadine was just so nice and that he accidentally ended up freaking shooting her in the eye and she was she never blamed him. He could never bring himself to break it off. And so then, you know, Norma and Hank hitched up and that was sort of the end of it. And they were just stuck. And it's one of those scenes that you can show, I think people show out of context, not have to do the qualifier. If it's Twin Peaks, it's weird. Just like, I think it's an amazingly written scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is really good. Genuinely moving. I don't think it hits those kind of highs in terms of character writing and relatable plot, like, ever. Yeah, no, this that scene is, is absolutely brilliant. Albert's in the background just laughing at him the entire time. They sort of cut to more and more of Albert's bemused reactions as, like, Ed's monologue goes on. And so what is, like, a series, a still very, like a very moving, like heart-wrenching scene has yeah, a perfect comedic juxtaposition to it. Yeah, and I like, I, I love that moment where he's kind of smirking like, oh, this guy is ridiculous. Like, this is such a dumb, corny story or whatever. And then, and then when Ed says that he shot her eye out, they like cut back to Albert's face and he just suddenly looks like very, it's a sort of, yeah, like what the hell kind of expression. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was really good. And I think too, it, it kind of prevents like, it almost like allows the scene to be more moving because it is kind of like juxtaposed with Halbert's smirking, cynical. City um, slicker. Yeah. And so I think it kind of prevents the viewers from having that kind of reaction because you see it on screen and it comes off as dickish. Mm -hmm. It's there. The scene sort of addresses that reaction as a way of preventing the scene from becoming melodramatic in the way that a lot of the other soapy stuff in Twin Peaks is. Well, yeah, I think I think Albert doing this sort of like his eyes, his eyebrows going up is like a oh man, you shot her, you shot her eyes out like hunting on your honeymoon, like how redneck. But then when Ed, Ed continues and like says what happened, it's like wow, that's like yep, that's just terrible luck, and like wow, that's super sad and also sweet and yeah, excellent yeah. scene. Uh, James shows up to see Ed and Nadine, I suppose, and Cooper notices that Jacques' body bag has been cleaned now and hung up to dry, and the way it's hung makes it smile. Yeah, the zipper is open, and so it's kind of, the bottom half of it is, like, gaping away from the top, and it's hung up at kind of a, in a kind of a curve. Pete does not enjoy the smell of hospital food. There's a scene where he wakes up, smells it without his oxygen, and then has to, uh, inhale many, many <laughs> whiffs to get whatever the slop was out of his nose. Norma and Shelley have a super cute exchange where, you know, I, everyone's making the rounds of the hospital. It's hospital day. Um, but they're <laughs> absolutely adorable. I love when, when Shelley says, Norma, I'm, I mean it. Bring the mm-hmm. whole pie. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a, the next, like, 20, 15 to 20 minutes uh, from, yeah, Ed's story onward is, like, a lot of really, really genuine, heartfelt writing for this episode, and it's really, really nice. Especially even though, you know, it is David Lynch doing all the direction, and there's so much weird stuff, but the fact that it's also right next to some of the highs in terms of just, like, scenes and line writing. This is Twin Peaks at its best. Mm-hmm. Which we keep saying, and I said earlier, but I'm now behind this episode. This is my No, episode, I mean man. it. I mean it this uh, time, yeah. Yeah. Norma on her way out spots Ed at Nadine's bedside and kind of has a, a wistful look. Major Briggs spots Bobby when he enters the Double R Diner and 
has them come over to the table and they, they chat for a little bit and it's awkward, but he then recounts this powerful vision he had. He says it's not a dream. He separates from a dream, which he said is merely a cataloging of the day's events, but he refers to a vision as the mind revealing itself to itself and talks about this, this vision he had about him and Bobby and like a powerful oneness between them. And I want to talk about this in spoiler territory, so I'm not going to go yeah. into too much detail. But this scene, I forgot it's in this episode. I forgot how good this episode was and how much is in this one but every time i see this scene it gives me chills and oh, goosebumps so and i cry it happened this time too and when i went to rewatch it for notes i was like i just watched this yesterday not even like 12 hours ago it's not gonna happen again and sure enough yep hair standing right on end yeah no it's a really powerful powerful scene i think major briggs is more he always is comes off as very serious but this comes off as like very um i don't know almost like grave like i don't know if that's the word for it but it's not just his typical like very mild-mannered very serious like philosophical parenting this is this is something else and bobby is bobby is actually moved by it i mean for the first time bobby seems not to be doing a shit-eating grin or a crocodile tears thing he's like yeah actually uh moved to almost tears i think by this and and major briggs thanks him for the opportunity to to share the the moment with him and it's very touching it's very strange it's off-putting because the contents of it, but... Yeah, well, and then he gets up and he, he like, shakes Bobby's hand and, you know, says, wishing him all the best or, or something like that. It's not as not mm-hmm. quite phrased like that. But then, um, and it's, it's almost like a... Like, you would expect this scene, um, especially because they run into each other at the diner. It reads like uh, this scene where they've, like, reunited after some... After, like, not seeing each other and then, like... Are, are parting and are not going to see each mm-hmm. other again. And then, but then he just says, I'll see you later at home. Yeah. Um, and it's that, like, that, all of that is still very much there tonally in the show. It suggests that this reuniting and farewell is is happening on a some other level than the literal, mm. um, which I like. I think that's really interesting. Well, it's also, I suppose Maddie has this earlier, but I do think, like, you've heard other, Major Briggs is supposedly a very minor character. I mean, even Bobby is not a particularly important character in the grand scheme of things up till now. And while other people have talked about, oh, yes, I've had strange dreams or I've, you know, I've seen this or thought about this. This one is like, this immediately arrests you and you're like, oh, like there's, this is important. This is not just like something is going on. Um, yeah. And especially because Briggs is so level headed and. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And also not as closely related to it, right? I mean, all of Sarah's visions and even right. Maddie's dreams and Coop's can be chalked up to either sort of like trauma and processing or Coop's just general wackiness, mm. you know, his sort of mesoph- metaphysical detectiving. But Briggs, because of the nature of his character, this requires you to take it more seriously because he's not the kind of person who would put stock in this unless it mattered, I guess. Yeah. And you also, you don't get to see this one. I mean, there's no, they right. don't, they don't overlay images with it. You don't see him sleeping in bed and then cut to, nope. But they have the, the music swelling behind it and then very, very good. Makes me, yeah, oof, it's just definition powerful because it puts my hairs on end. Bobby, after Major Briggs has left, exchange, exchanges looks with Hank and then basically kind of realizes he's screwed because Hank saw him at Leo's when he tried to kill Leo. We then see Cooper laying out the case details as we know them so far, which I thought was actually pretty useful. It confirms that they now, like, how much of the timeline that we're basically aware of that they've put together. And so we can kind of square, like, okay, this is, in fact, 
what, what happened, happened. Yeah. and how and when. Yeah. Yeah, they talk about a third man. They say that the blood type doesn't match on the note doesn't match anyone else's. A rare, rare type, A B negative. Yeah, they say that the the third man is the one that took Laura to the train car. So it was not Jacques or Leo. Yeah. Ronette, he must have just been intent on killing Laura because although he struck Ronette, Ronette was able to escape. And then uh, afterwards, yeah, he set up the crime details, the the mound of dirt, the necklace, and and the the note written the in blood. The note in blood, yeah. Andy finally stands up to Albert. Yeah, I don't remember what Albert says that sets him off. Oh, he refers to Andy's crying again about Laura, and he refers to it as oh, a, real, right. a real three-hanky crime. Which, of all the things he said, that's not that offensive. I mean, you know, I don't that's know. That's also not that good of a quip. Truman drives Pete home from the hospital. Uh, I guess he's uh, he's good. The smoke inhalation's passed. And they find a note from Josie who says that she went to Seattle. And Pete suspects that it was for a shopping spree. When I saw Truman walk in, my immediate thought was, yeah, wait a minute. Why isn't he worried about Josie? Yeah. I suppose this sort of answers it. Yeah. Well, there's nothing that places her at the mill. That's true. But I feel like he'd still be freaked out. Like, she went missing the same night. All this stuff went down. Hmm. Yeah, true. That, that, the the dynamic between them is all over the place, and that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Truman has to break the news to Pete about Catherine, who, despite yeah, they, troubles in their marriage, he, uh, he seems distressed. You know, they're both clearly unhappy, but he's still very broken up by it, and it, you know, just... He, he says it by his own admission. He says, like, I mean... She was hell to live with. Yeah, he says it was hell to live with, but if there was someone that I thought would make it through, it would have been her, so... A man in a suit and a ponytail phones them from the Great Northern looking for Josie, and when they are unable to supply her location, he hangs up and phones Hong Kong. Jerry and Ben walk by him before they meet Hank. Jerry's describing what, uh, some kind of rare dessert. I think this scene must have been improvised. I think they must have just improvised the dialogue. He seems to, re- he seems to just be sort of making this up as he goes. Yeah, there's, like, random French words thrown in there that don't mean any... I mean, they mean things, but they don't mean anything related to what he's discussing. He says, he says like, it's rolled in this, like, four different times, so... But whatever yeah. it is, it sounds, I mean, pretty good. They're basically meeting with Hank in their office, although it's pitch black. It, the lights are all off, but they don't turn them on. <laughs> but it's the middle of the day, I think. Anyway, Hank says that he was only able to put Leo into a coma... Couldn't go inside to finish off the job, but that Catherine got burnt up in the fire. Not much to talk about here. Everyone just sort of, again, their positioning. Jerry gets briefly fighty with Hank. Yeah. Like, and then Hank just kind of starts laughing and acts really jovial. Yeah. Blackie gives Audrey a talking to about her uh, reluctance to get it on with Daddy. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I hate you. I mostly just wanted to pull that reaction out of you. Uh, Not much to say here. (coughs) Whatever. Uh, Moving on. Donna calls Norma and asks if she can take over Laura's Meals on Wheels route to investigate the note that she received. And shortly after, the Haywards host the Palmers and the third Hayward sister, who's Ginger, we've never seen before... Plays piano as the second Hayward sister. Harriet. Harriet, there we go. Recites sort of a weird spoken word poem about Laura. 
in front of her family in the Palmers. It's an odd choice. <laughs> yeah, it's, but it's very uncomfortable, but it is also what, like, a 12-year-old artsy person would think is appropriate to do, you know? Like, yeah, I've seen well-meaning drama, drama kids do that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, how can, how can I be important and artistic in this tragedy? How can we how can we make this just a little bit more about me? Yeah, kind of. It's closed up by some, some piano playing by the second Hayward sisters. They pan across their faces, and then it fades into halfway through dinner. Doc Hayward seems to have pinned down Ben's scheme with the burning of the mill in Ghostwood Estates pretty well, but Leland uh, obviously declines to comment as both of their lawyers... And as he has no idea why his hair has turned white, but it just happened. And for the first time, he feels good, and he wants to sing again. <laughs> God. Uh, I, I've, com- I've commented on this before, but I think one of the things that I admire most about David Lynch, even as it is the most unpleasant part of his shows and movies is that, my God, he really knows how to capture an uncomfortable moment and make mm-hmm. it deeply uncomfortable for everyone watching it, as well as the people in it. Well, it's it's so uncomfortable that in the midst of his rousing round of Get Happy, uh, accompanied by the Hayward sister, he sings so hard that he faints. Cooper records a message for Diane before heading to bed. And across the border... Audrey is giving a bedtime prayer to him from One-Eyed Jacks uh, since he, he never was able to see her message that she left for him. As Cooper drifts off to sleep, the giant visits him once again, tells him that only one person saw the third man, although three saw him but not his body, and that that person is ready to speak now. He adds that Cooper forgot something before raising his hand, disappearing and sending some kind of golden light into Cooper, uh, who wakes up. And in the final scene, we move slowly through the hospital corridors to Ronette, shot shot in much the same way as the, the previous scene I mentioned, but her arms begin to float almost exorcist style or something, and we see loud, violent, fractured visions of Bob attacking her, beating her, and a crazed demonic Laura Uh, in the train car. The episode ends on a freeze frame as Bob screams distortedly into the night. And then we cut to credits and we're back to that third Hayward sister playing very jaunty piano music. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Just to slice that tension straight through, huh? So I'm gonna... Let's throw on a spoiler. Yeah. So the first spoilery thing I want to talk about is just spoilers for later in season two. When the giant says that... Only one person saw the third man. Three saw him, but didn't see his body. Is the body Bob? Or is the, the body bo- is the body is Leland? Okay. Yeah. The three people that saw him saw Bob. But not Leland. But only Ronette. I think that's what he's talking about, yes? Does Ronette actually talk to the police after this? Does she wake up and talk? Because she doesn't tell them that it's Leland. Um, if she does. So that was why I got a little confused. I'm not sure. We'll have to wait and see. But So when you think about it, that you see her visions of Bob sort of screaming and chasing them and beating them. 
I mean, I believe that was Leland. So what we're seeing is her visions of the metaphysical thing. I mean, she had to have been present when Leland was there because he did it. So So three saw him. Sarah. Sarah, Matt, Maddie, maybe Donna? Donna didn't see him. Cooper's seen him. Oh. Cooper's seen, Cooper has seen Bob. Okay. Sarah yes, has seen yes, Bob. Yes. Okay. Well, I'll have to remember, like, I'll be interested to see, because I don't exactly remember how that plays out. Consummate professionals, us. <laughs> so, you know, Mr. Briggs, Major Briggs, and Bobby's scene you know, at the double R is some straight out of episode eight shit. Yeah. The dream is that he is on, he returns to a palatial estate, a pristine palatial estate from which he, he feels a great connection as though homecoming. It seems to emanate a light as a light from within a giant gleaming marble. And it's, I mean, it's just like, it's a description of the White Lodge in episode eight, almost image for image. He's, he says like that in his vision, it was the place where he was raised right like that was he, he says something like that which is and it gives even more significance to mr Br- mr <laughs> i keep saying mr because i abbreviated major on my notes as mjr mjr died. yeah well him is sort of an agent of the white lodge and his relevance to season three this is it all kind of ties back into that but even just the fact that they took they took that little bit verbatim and like that was like a, oh oh yeah, you can clearly see where they went back to the to the original show to get that kind of imagery. At the end of the vision, I suppose, is that he there's a knock at the door. It's Bobby, and that he's just they hug and that share an energy between them. So it becomes sort of a fatherhood thing of him just being proud of his son. But that opening is enough. That it's just oof. Also, that the giant takes Cooper's ring. Uh, yeah, that comes back. Appearing and disappearing rings are pretty common motif later on. Although I still couldn't tell you what any of it means. So. But it's still cool. It's still interesting. I can't keep track of the ring and yeah, where it, uh-uh. the the little golden ball thing, the ball of light with the giant. That's um, that comes back in season three when Doggy goes into the Black Lodge, right? Instead of Mister C, there's that little oh, golden the, like the thing on the Doggy. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I don't think we actually see a golden. I I read this the golden light that he sends into Coop at the end as more like the golden ball that they send of Laura than the literal marble. Oh. Because the marble to me seems, that's like a specific. I thought it came out as like a glowing thing like that briefly before oh, it turned into the actual that's marble. possible. But I don't I know. Mean, it's, I mean, maybe it's both. Maybe, yes, it, it could be both or neither. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure when the original Dougie goes into the Black Lodge instead of Mr. C that his... Above his head, instead of his head. Oh yeah, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> briefly. There's that. There's a, a very similar glowing light that then turns into the actual physical glowing marble that the I thought it was. A, I thought it was black flames. Oh, maybe it is black flames. Just the fact that the giant, who we come to know as the fireman and possibly the head of, if not important agent of the White Lodge, is there doing very clearly sort of mystical things is enough to to set me on the like oh shit path. So. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, I, I think that the the scene, um, the first appearance of the giant when Cooper says, "Where have you come from?" and then he's the giant says, "The more important question is, where have you gone?" Is this future? Or is this past? Yeah, because the the giant is from the White Lodge, and then and then yeah, in in season three, like obviously, like Cooper is in the Black Lodge, and then 
Yeah, yeah. So it's just it's interesting seeing all this White Lodge stuff that this stuff that, that clearly connects to the White Lodge that they clearly went back to when they decided to make the White Lodge a bigger part of yeah season three. Well, even just the uh, it says we want we want to help you. The we is very pronounced, and and Coop tries to clarify who is we, and the, the giant was not just a like a sort this of is, this is a renegade like benevolent. Yeah, yeah. That, that there was even this far back some sense of him being part of an organization. I don't I don't think it was the royal we he was using. So <laughs> no, no, there's a clear like White Lodge, Black Lodge. Yeah, that it's not just like Bob and the giant both as kind of like these renegade like spirits out in the world like there is a, a larger conflict going on here that is well, involved I, in it i don't know if i don't know if we know that just yet though no i don't think that's in this episode but i think you i can see it in this episode now right 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 right, right. Okay. i don't i didn't the first time i saw it i thought it was just like weird there's a giant now strange <laughs> and it does certainly speak to what, what we said earlier minus spoilers just that this is an episode that is bringing things back into a larger world here and a larger context in terms of the case so not just in terms of the serial murder but also in the, the mythos and the supernatural it. elements yeah. surrounding it so um i think we're ready to go off spoilers all right you, you can't say all right when i'm in that's the i gotta it's gotta be separate okay <laughs> are you done yeah we're back so wrap up this is such a good episode it's so good to... it's so good by itself, but also just as a pulling you back in after being away for a season. It, it fills you in on what has happened. It picks up right after it is left off, and it jumps right back into the action. It is immaculately directed. It has some of the best writing in the entire series. It balances its different characters and their aftermath from the season finale really, really well, and I think it immediately reinvests you into the mystery, even though a lot of stuff seemed to be wrapping up, and suddenly yeah. it's not. Yeah, and we talked about this in the in the spoilers part, but for people who skipped that, it does that really well by connecting it back to this larger larger context, both in terms of the serial killer aspect of the murder, but also in bringing back in the the visions, having introducing the giant, having reconnecting the sort of supernatural elements to the mystery Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. as well because in a lot of ways they've just been not disconnected but i think this episode reminds us why the supernatural aspects of this case are important because Mm -hmm. there is a this distinction like the giant says between the third man and who has seen him and who has seen his body right that they kind of have to investigate this supernatural element in order to solve the actual murder. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we've... There's a lot happened in this episode, uh, because it's an hour and a half, so... Uh, some of our analysis is in spoilers, so I apologize, but really, I just think this is... It's such a good premiere for a second season. That's what I like about it so much, is that... And even though it's slow in spots, it uses that hour and a half really well. Um, it uses it to ha- give us these visions, and the giant, and the scene with Major Briggs and Bobby... And then also these really grounded, in reality, heartfelt scenes like the one with Ed and Nadine. There's there's a lot going on and there's a lot of different tones being set in different places in this episode. And I think needed to take that time so that those shifts didn't feel jarring. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the music is a huge standout in this episode. Obviously, it's a lot of the same tracks, but it's, it's used extremely effectively and paired with very, very deliberate 
direction on, in this one. It's it is just super fun to watch, and it feels like yeah, the, you know, this episode like one, two, four, vintage, vintage TP baby. Go watch it. It's just it 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 made me cry like twice in a row. So yeah, just a really really brilliant episode. Thanks for uh, joining us again after uh, our hiatus. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll shake off a little bit of our ring rust and. Yep, we'll be back to uh, our regular every other week episodes. Uh, oh no! Uh, so what? sorry, we are getting a we're getting a call. It seems like someone is reporting uh, this this giant on the fourth floor. So <laughs> we're gonna bit. have to we're gonna have to sign off. Now, uh, tune in next week and uh, oh, 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 boy, 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 hang we'll on. post uh, live updates on the giant situation on our Twitter feed at Northern Live Pod. Get a, get a baseball bat, get a, get a brew or something. See you next week. <laughs>